Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we will begin a review of the Silver King's War and his life from 1933 to 1955. Stanley was born in Birmingham, Alabama on April 23, 1923 to Milton and Sarah Bell Silverfield. In 1933, when Stanley was 10, the man who may have had the most influence on Stanley's life, and certainly as a young man being in the war, was being honored in a faraway Kansas town. Glenn L. Martin, the man who made the B-26, the famed Martin Marauder, where Stanley rode in the nose in the greenhouse, was being honored at his alma mater in Salina, Kansas. The Salina Journal, in a, a story printed on Tuesday, February 21st of 1933, described a banquet held in Glen Martin's honor, where Kansas Wesleyan University conferred on Glen Martin an honorary degree at Founders Day. Beneath the title, A Hometown Boy, the paper posted this story. A hometown boy who has made good, Glenn L. Martin, head of the aircraft company bearing his name, was the guest of honor at the annual Founders Day Banquet at Kansas Wesleyan University, held at the First Methodist Church Monday evening. It was one of the largest crowds that has been present at such an event, and many of those present having been boyhood or schoolhood friends of Mr. Martin. Culmination of the affair came with the conferring of the degree of Bachelor of Science upon the guest by President L. B. Bowers of the university. And proudest of all, the crowd that had gathered to pay tribute to the achievement of the man who was dreaming and working with plans for airplanes when most people had not yet their first automobile was Mrs. C. Y. Martin mother of the newly created doctor of science, who was enjoying the greatest satisfaction that comes to any mother, the pleasure of seeing the old hometown crowd give formal and public credit to her son for his accomplishment. And, probably because so many in the audience realized the part that her sympathy and encouragement had played in his success, the crowd stood in homage to Mrs. Martin and to all mothers when she was introduced. In response to the conferring of the degree, Mr. Martin first thanked Kansas Wesleyan and its faculty and the Board of Trustees for the honor and expressed his personal pleasure for the opportunity to meet with his old friends. And then he plunged into a discussion about the airline industry and told modestly for the part his own company, which largely builds aircraft for the Army and Navy, has taken in the development of the fighting plane. In our research laboratory, we are far ahead of the developments in airplanes for the use of war, Mr. Martin said. Much of what is being done cannot be told, 
for it comes under the head of military information and is zealously guarded. In fact, Secret Service men are stationed all over Baltimore, where the plant is located, to prevent outsiders of getting an idea of what we are doing or the experiments we are conducting. Transportation has been developing rapidly. It took the telegraph and telephone to make the practice a safe operation of fast trains, and it took the radio to make the airplane a tremendous factor in war preparations. In fact, it is generally conceded that in future wars, the nation with the greatest strength in the air has the most insurmountable advantage. With the bombing planes, we can see the weakest link on a railroad and destroy it to interfere with movement of supplies and mobilization of troops. Highways can be destroyed that will require months to reconstruct. Power plants can be wrecked so that they are useless unless they can be rebuilt, which also is a matter of months. And if the struggle becomes desperate enough, germs, gas, and bacteria can be released which will wipe out entire communities. Mr. Martin concluded his remarks with, Today we are ahead of other countries in the development of aircraft, but the advantage may not be for long. So for our own protection, it is necessary to continue our experiments and to maintain supremacy in the air for the speed and distances that large planes can fly without refueling makes it imperative that we can both attack and defend against a method of warfare that is more dangerous than any menace we have ever faced. Three months later, and thousands of miles from Salina, Kansas, in Washington, D.C., the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was presenting a trophy to Glenn Martin. And that spring day, the president said of Mr. Martin, who was by then a legend in aviation design and production. When a man is selected to receive the Collier Trophy for the year's outstanding contribution to aviation, he is receiving, in effect, the thanks of the entire nation as well as the aviation industry. Mrs. Martin, we in America share your pride in the achievement of your son. Glenn Martin received the Robert J. Collier Trophy, which is the highest award for the greatest achievement in aviation each year for the design and the development of the B-10 bomber. The Martin B-10 bomber was part of the success story for Martin manufacturing between World War I and World War II. Glenn Martin had moved his manufacturing operation from Cleveland to a new site east of Baltimore in Middle River, Maryland, and his relationship with the Army Air Corps continued to grow. The apex of that relationship was a mission led by then-Lieutenant Colonel Henry H. Hap Arnold to lead a flight of 10 B-10 bombers on a six-day mission to Alaska in July 1934. And after that mission, the Air Corps ordered 151 B-10B planes. In the fall of 1938, Stanley was 15 and a high school sophomore. He was a good student, stellar athlete, 
and someone who followed politics as a young man. He was reading about Europe, and the concerns he had, of course, were, was America to join the effort in what might become a Second World War? And he had read about Glenn and Minta Martin's visit to Germany to review the production of German aircraft. And of course, Stanley knew that the arsenal of democracy was underway in America. Major industrial operations, including the automobile makers, were converting their programs to build war machines. And all this was underway in the middle of the second term for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Stanley's history lesson took a remarkable and dark turn in November of 1938. What became Crystal Knock, or the Night of Broken Glass, was a program against Jews carried out by the Nazi Party and paramilitary forces and civilians throughout Germany on November 9th and 10th of 1938. Shards of broken glass littered the streets after the Germans broke the windows of Jewish-owned stores and buildings and synagogues. The pretext for the attacks was the assassination of the German diplomat Ernst von Rath by Herschel Grinspian, a 17-year-old German-born Polish Jew living in Paris. Jewish homes, hospitals, and schools were ransacked as attackers demolished buildings with sledgehammers and rioters destroyed 267 synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland. Over 7,000 Jewish businesses were damaged or destroyed, and 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and incarcerated in concentration camps. The Times of London published this commentary on November 11, 1938. No foreign propaganda spent upon blackening Germany before the world could outdo the tale of burnings and beatings of black-guardedly assaults on defenseless and innocent people, which disgraced that country yesterday. Crystal Knock, the night of broken glass, was a prelude to the murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. In 1939, as the American arsenal of democracy continued its development of war machines, the United States Army Air Corps released a circular in March requesting proposals for a medium-range bomber, and that became the B-26. The competition for that program was intense, and it attracted bids from Stearman and Consolidated, Burnell, Douglas, and North American, including Martin. The three leading contenders were the Martin 179, the North American 62, which was an enlarged version of that firm's attack bomber, and the Douglas B-23, which was an update of their B-18. The Martin 179 proposal was the winner. 
qualifying with over 800 points. However, Glenn Martin told the Air Corps that they could only produce 201 Model 179s, which were then designated as the B-26, during the specified 24 months of production. So the remaining 184 medium bombers went to the runner-up, which became the B-25 Mitchell. Ironically, it was Glenn Martin who had teamed with Billy Mitchell after the First World War to demonstrate the viability of aircraft as a significant upgrade in war machinery. The $16 million order for the Martin B-26 at that point was the largest sum ever made by the United States Army Air Corps. Two months later, on May 29, 1939, Glenn Martin was on the cover of Time magazine. In a story titled Transport, Time wrote, To Baltimore, adding designers, draftsmen, withdrawing more and more from designing to administer the business, Martin turned out better and better models in rapid succession. He swapped little information with other manufacturers and became known as a somber lone wolf. From the Cleveland plant came the first plane built specifically for mail service, the first metal American monoplane of which the Navy bought 36, the first bomber with an alloy steel fuselage of which the Navy bought 103. And by 1925, it was time to expand again, and this time Builder Martin decided to have plenty of room. From unsuspecting holders of Tidewater property above Baltimore, options were cautiously obtained by agents who represented themselves as acting for a New York sportsman's club. When they were all in, Glen L. Martin Company had options on 1,243 acres of land and was ready to build a plant. The Army Air Corps made its award to Martin Manufacturing in late August of 1939, and two weeks later, the war began in Europe. At dawn on September 1, 1939, the German invasion of Poland began. France and the United Kingdom declared war on September 3rd after an ultimatum for German forces immediately to withdraw their people from Poland was refused. Australia and New Zealand also declared war on September 3rd, South Africa on September 6th, and Canada on September 10th. Allied military commitments to Poland were a failure, and the possibility of Soviet assistance to Poland ended with the Munich Agreement in 1938 in which the Soviet Union and Germany eventually negotiated what became the Nazi-Soviet Pact, which included an agreement to partition Poland. Stanley, now a high school senior, in the late fall and early winter of 1939, was reading the newspaper every day and following what became the war in Europe. He loved the news couldn't get enough of it, read as much as he could possibly consume, while being a high schooler, working for the family business, and playing lots of hardball. 
and as darkness descends upon Europe at the end of 1939. We have reached the end of this episode of the review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.